You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, Stonegate, it's good to see you this morning. Thanks for braving the, uh, the cold outside. Winter reappeared on us. And so if you want to grab your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5, it would be so helpful to have it out and open there on your lap this morning so you can follow along. And while you're turning there, just a couple of things to... Uh, to get to you. Number one is if you are a new visitor uh, today, thank you so much for being here. We hope this morning is one of those mornings that the Spirit of God just speaks to you and does things in your soul that would be so beneficial to your soul. And if you'll just make sure at some point during the service you fill out the card that's in the seat back in front of you, it should be a black card that says connect on it, and, uh, and if you'll, at the end of the service, put that card filled out either in the offering basket when it comes around, or better yet, you can take it out to the uh, Connect Center, which is just on the other side of that wall, and if you'll give it to those guys out there, they'll exchange that for a gift. So if you would do that for us, we would just so appreciate that. It would help us follow up with you and serve you. And so if you wouldn't mind, that would be uh, great. And uh, just a fair warning this morning, uh, before I get into just one other thing I want to tell you before we jump in, uh, fair warning is this is a PG-13 sermon. Uh, so you just heard the, the sort of the, the passage that was read. Those are the sort of things that we're going to explore. So if you need to do something about that, um, if you're a parent in the room, this would be your time to do it. As I uh, say one other thing before we jump into our text this morning. And the other thing is, I just want to uh, encourage you and commend you as a church family on your generosity. Um, it's really an amazing thing for me to watch our people give so generously uh, to our church family. And let me just tell you a few of the stories that have happened over the last uh, couple of months. At the end of 2018... We gave $50,000 to Omni Fellowship. Our church family gave them $50,000. Um, Omni was a church that we helped plant. They were trying to get into a building. And without this church family um, sacrificing and giving generously in that sort of a way, it wouldn't have happened. That, that's one of the stories over the last few months. Um, over the last 30 days, we've given about $30,000 to families who are adopting kiddos to help make that possible. Um, on Friday night, I got the chance to meet one of those little kiddos. Just unbelievable, precious. And that's, that's your generosity going to work for those sorts of things. Um, over the last about 60 days, uh, the Lord has used this church family um, to get several families who were just in really, really hard spots into cars. Uh, just to get them transportation where they could get around and get to work and all those sorts of things. And let me just tell you how that happens. Someone in our family, uh, church family, they, they see a need, they step into that need. And then if it's bigger than what that one person can do, they involve their community, typically their, their group that they're in, and they get those guys involved in that. And if it gets bigger than that, then our church family in, uh, kind of at large all contributes to making that moment happen. But, but isn't that an amazing thing? When that goes down, that the person sees it, that they involve their wider community and then our wider church family, that need gets met by Jesus. It's an amazing thing to watch that. Um, we've committed to helping um, our friend Aaron Fair. He is a church planter in Southeast Asia. Uh, we've committed to helping him get a project off the ground. It's about a $200,000 project. And our church family has partnered with one a family in our church to basically meet them halfway to match $100,000 of their fundraising so that they could get into this project and to get this thing down the road. And I just want to, I want to commend you. Here is the only way that happens is for our entire church family to be in when it comes to generosity. That that's the only way these things have worked is for us to all be contributing in that sort of a way. And it's amazing to me when I just think about that in our church family. Um, since January 1st, this is the last three months, 
um, the first three months of, of 2019, since January 1st, as a church family, we've had 141 first-time givers to Stonegate. Isn't that amazing? That is, that is amazing. And so if that's you, I just want to say thanks for jumping in with us. It's only through your generosity that stories like this can happen. Now, when I think about our church family, I just, I'm thinking of the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 stories that the Lord's going to have our church family, you know, step into. And the only way those stories are going to happen, it's the same way they have been happening. The only way that's going to happen is for our entire church family to be all in. For us to be completely in. That's all of us. All in is the only way these sort of things happen. So if you're not in with us on that yet, I just want to invite you in on that. Don't miss out on the Lord using you for the purpose of multiplication. Don't miss out on the Lord's opportunity for you to jump into that. But church family, I just want you to feel commended and encouraged by how the Lord is using you this morning. Okay, we are to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Um, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. That's uh, the, the sermon of, of Jesus that, that he gives, and it stretches between Matthew. It's a three-chapter sermon between Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 7. And if your Bible has read words for Jesus, all of these words are going to be read. Um, in a sense, in this three-chapter sermon, Jesus sits, at, uh, sits us down. He pulls up a chair in front of us, and he just he conveys his heart toward us. Jesus the king tells us what life with him the king's going to look like, what life in his kingdom's going to look like. And this morning, in this particular text, Jesus gets up close and personal. He starts to meddle in um, what is, for many of us, a very private area of our life. It's a very private but a very important area of our life. Uh, Jesus is showing us this morning that he actually has something to say about our sexual ethics, about about that area of our life. And so here's, here's the flow of the morning. I've got two points from this passage and two kind of ways to apply it. Two points and two applications. And this is just going to follow right down through the text. Two, two points, two things Jesus is trying to get across, and then two ways to apply what Jesus says. Here's point one. Point one, the law downsized. The law downsized. This is the first thing that we see happening in this text. The law was being downsized. Now, I love preaching verse by verse through the Bible. This is the normative way we preach around here. The normal thing we do is just like we're doing now. We take the Sermon on the Mount and we just start going verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. But preaching verse by verse does have potential dangers. And, and one of those dangers is that you can get so in the weeds of a particular passage that you lose the overarching context that that passage is in. You're down in the weeds, you're, you're seeing all the trees, but you're just not seeing the totality of the forest. And that is, we're very prone to do that in a passage like this. So we've got to make sure that we see that the forest, that this particular tree of this passage is set within. So the, the forest, you see that in verses 17 through 20. We covered this passage a few weeks ago. If you just back up a few verses, this is where Jesus introduces the theme really of the sermon. This is the interpretive key. This is the main idea that the rest of the sermon is going to unpack and sort of untie for us. And in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Then in verses 19 and 20, he gives this warning. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, whoever relaxes my law and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, so Jesus lays it out for us. If you want to be least in the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be least, 
If, if that's what you want, here's how you do that. You relax the commands of God. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the ways to relax the commands of God. There, there's really two ways to relax the law. One is what you might call relativism, and that is so the cultural air that we breathe. You can't help but live in 21st century America and have to have adopted some of that relativistic way of seeing and thinking. It could be embodied in these sort of thoughts. No one can determine what's right or wrong for me. There are no absolutes. And we laughed about that a couple of weeks ago. That, that is such an absolute statement, isn't it? There are no absolutes. Everything is subjective. You have to go find right and wrong for you. No one else can tell you what's right or wrong. God has no right to say what's right or wrong, what you should and shouldn't do. Relativism is this way of viewing life in God that says, rather than adjusting my life to fit the commands of God, I'm going to adjust the commands of God to fit my life. That's relativism. This is one of the ways that we can relax uh, the commands of God. Now, here's the other way. This is the less obvious way that we can relax the commands of God is through legalism, through legalism. Okay, so to see what legalism is, you first have to see what the good news of Jesus is. Here's one, ways, one way that you could summarize the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus's righteousness given to us by faith. That's how we could summarize the good news of Jesus. It's Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' right standing before God. His perfection before God. It's Jesus' righteousness given to us through faith. But here's what legalism does. It twists the gospel into a false gospel. Legalism says this. It's Jesus' righteousness given to us through good works. So, so Jesus' righteousness is something we attain by what we do. It's Jesus' righteousness given to us through good works. That's legalism. And this is what Jesus is addressing in verse 20 of Matthew 5. When he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You, you will not. You, you are going to end up in hell unless your righteousness is greater than and exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, think about that. that the scribes and the Pharisees were the good guys. That, that would be akin to, to Jesus saying, you need to shoot a basketball better than Steph Curry. I, I, that, that every, there would be a collective gasp in the crowd when they heard Jesus say, you've got to be better than these guys. So, so what is Jesus getting at here? Is, is Jesus saying you have to out-Pharisee a Pharisee? Like you've got to be better than the best guys? Is that what Jesus is saying? No, that's not what he's saying. Rather, Jesus is saying your righteousness has to be of an altogether different kind. If you're depending on the sort of righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees are depending on, you are doomed. You will be eternally ruined. See, here was the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees. They had shrunk the law of God down to what they could do. They downsized the law. The law was up here. It's not humanly doable. And they would downsize the law. They would lower the bar. They would downsize it so that they could do it. They, they, they would shrink the law of God so that it would be humanly possible. So, so the law of God became all external, just in a matter of, of doing and not doing. Everything out there. Just what was the minimum we could do to actually fulfill the letter of the law? And, and Jesus is confronting them in this passage. So Jesus quotes the seventh commandment. You see this in verse 27. Matthew 5, 27, he's talking to scribes and Pharisees, people who are relaxing the law through legalism. And he tells them, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Now, the next verse is going to add a contrast. But 
So, so what is Jesus' problem here? You've heard it said you should not commit adultery. T- to be clear, Jesus' problem is not with the law. Jesus' problem is not with the seventh commandment. Jesus' problem is, what, is with what the scribes and Pharisees have done to the seventh commandment. That They have shrunk, they have downsized the seventh commandment so that it was all external. It was only concerned with deeds, not desires. It was singular or particular in focus. So when they thought of the seventh commandment, it was if you can just avoid this one deed, if you can just keep sex within the confines of your marriage, then you're good. It was external. It was singular, particular to just one single act. In doing that, in seeing the seventh commandment that way, the scribes and Pharisees had lowered the law of God to the point where they could actually do it. See, that's what, that's what in, in that way, they represent every legalist. What every legalist will do, they don't love the law. They're not, they're not treating the law as sacred and as, as high as it actually is. They're actually shrinking the law. This is what every legalist does. This is what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. They shrunk the law down so that they could do it, so that they could look at the seventh commandment, beat their chest, and say, God, what else do you have? Can we get to the eighth one? Because the seventh one, check, it's done. This is how they were seeing the seventh commandment. It, It was low enough for them to actually do it. The bar was low enough for them to actually jump over it. And after they jumped over it, they would bring their doing before God. They would bring their good behavior before God as a resume to show God why he would be lucky to have them on their team. That this was what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were laxing the commands of God. They were taking the seventh commandment and, and they, were, they were seeing it just through the letter of the law. Everything was external. Everything was particular and singular, singular to that one particular act. And as long as we avoided that one particular act, then we were good. They, they downsized the law. Point number two, the law deepened. Jesus was not okay with the downsized law. He wasn't okay with that. So Jesus confronts them in their downsizing of the law and Jesus deepens it in verse 28. So here's verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now here comes the the, the hammer. But, that's contrast. But, I have something else to say to you. But, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, Jesus is saying here that long before you break the seventh commandment in bed, you've already broken it in your heart. That the seventh commandment was never meant to be external. It was never meant to be singular in its focus. Right? His point is the seventh commandment, scribes and Pharisees, you who have downsized the law... The seventh commandment is so much bigger and broader and deeper than you ever would have thought. It goes goes behind your deeds. You cannot shrink the law of God down to just what you're doing, this external behavior. It goes way beyond your deeds, all the way down to your desires. That's how big and broad and deep the seventh commandment goes. Now, let me make a few observations about verse 28. I just want to make a few clarifying comments about verse 28. The first one, Jesus isn't saying that sexual desire is bad. I just want to be clear on that. It's really important. Uh, that would be a, uh, a mishearing what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying that sexual desire is bad. There are generally three ways to view sex. And culturally, uh, here, here are the three ways. Um, one way is to see sex as gross. 
And, and hear me on this. There is so little said in many churches and families about sex that it, it doesn't surprise me that the message is caught from people growing up in some churches that that's true, that sex is bad. But, but, it, but it's not. Sex is not gross. That's not the way the Bible uh, talks about sex. So one way of seeing it is sex is gross. Another way to see sex is that sex, or it, sex is God. So not sex is gross, but sex as God. This is the other end of the spectrum. It, it's, it's the way of viewing sex that it's like you couldn't have a complete fulfilled life apart from it. That, that is so not the way the Bible sees it. Sex isn't gross. Sex isn't God. Jesus was a single man. He lived into his mid-30s as a single man. He never had sex. And Jesus was the most complete, fulfilled, joyful person you have ever seen. Right? So, so sex is not gross. Sex is not God. These are not the ways that the Bible talks about it. Rather, the Bible sees sex as a gift. Who, who created sex? Who made human beings as sexual beings? The answer to that is God did. And romance, marriage, sex, these are God-created things, and God has gifted them to us. Their design is so that the world could look through these things and see something about God. That's why God created these things. Something about how intimate and enjoyable God is to his people. This is why those things exist. Sex is not gross. Sex is not God. It's, it's sex as a gift. Now, I want to just slow down for just a moment and linger over this for the sake of parents in the room. Parents, you are the primary disciplers of your kids. And that means you're one of the primary disciplers in their life to teach them about sex. And you need to do that early, like before their, their, their friends start talking, like their friends that don't know anything about it, before those friends start talking to them about it. Like, it's your job to have these conversations. This is, this is what discipleship looks like as a parent. It is to, to wade into these things and to help your kids get a sense of what these things are. It's not gross. It's not God. It's a gift from God, right? And these conversations should start early in age-appropriate ways. Like, if you have a kid and they're like six to nine years old, you better be finding ways in an age-appropriate way to talk to them about these things, to set sex within its beautiful and biblical context so that your kids can see it as a gift from God. If you don't, you can just mark it up. It's either going to be gross or it's going to, going to be God. The, the only way you get to gift is by discipling your kids to that. So I just want to encourage you, parents in the room, you better get on that. If your kids are over 10, you're like behind the game on that. Like, you better, you better ramp that up, and you better get the conversations going. You're the primary discipler, so, so talk to them about these things. So sex, Jesus isn't saying that sex is bad. What he is confronting is lustful intent. L lustful intent. That, that's what he's confronting. So what is that? Well, the word lust in the Bible, that is a big, big biblical word. Um, it's addressed in the 10th commandment. In some ways, lust is a way of talking about the human problem. If you want to think lust, not lustful intent, let me just go to lust first. Lust is wanting what God in his wisdom forbids. That's what lust is. Okay, and that, that is the human problem. It's that, that our wanter is wrong. That we all want, but our wantings are wrong. We, we want wrong things or we want the right things in the wrong ways. That, that's lust. It's wanting what, what God in his wisdom forbids. So now in this passage, it's applied to sexuality. So, so how, what would we say about lustful intent? Lustful intent is wanting sex in ways that God in his wisdom forbids. 
It's wanting sex in ways that God in his wisdom forbids. Okay, now think about what, what Jesus is doing here. By explaining the seventh commandment in this way, Jesus is clarifying the problem isn't just adultery. That's not the problem. Adultery is, is just a representative sexual sin that, that, that covers the whole category of sexual sin. So you cannot shrink the law of God, the seventh command, down to adultery. Adultery is just representing the whole category called sexual sin. This is Jesus' point here. So rape and sexual abuse are, are covered in the seventh commandment. Adultery is covered in the seventh commandment. Premarital sex is covered in the seventh commandment. Homosexual behavior is covered in the seventh commandment. Pornography is covered in the seventh commandment. Adulterous fantasies are covered in the seventh commandment. Imagining yourself with a different husband or different spouse, that's covered in the seventh commandment. All the way down to that lingering and consuming look, that's all covered in the seventh commandment. Jesus is saying all of that is breaking the seventh commandment. This is how deep the seventh commandment goes. You cannot just shrink it down to some sort of particular external action. It goes all the way down to that lingering and consuming look. It covers the whole category of sexual sin. So Jesus isn't saying that, that sexual desires is bad. He is confronting lustful intent. Here's the second observation from verse 28. Jesus, now, and I want to thread the needle on this. I think this is important to understand, though. Jesus isn't saying lustful intent equals adultery in every way. I want to be clear. There's a, there's a threading of the needle, so you're going to have to think with me here. He's not saying that these two are equal in every way. Jesus' point is that, now hear the point. The point is they are equal in they equally break the seventh commandment, lustful intent and adultery. They equally break the seventh commandment. That They equally put us in need of rescuing grace. They equally um, deserve the wrath of God. They're equal in all of those ways. But, but Jesus, on the other hand, isn't saying that they're exactly equal in severity or consequences or, or the damage that they inflict. If you think back to the sermon that Jimmy preached last week, and did he do a great job? If you're going to sin against me, and we're talking the sixth commandment, I would much rather it be anger than murder. Okay, so I, I just want to say that. Please be angry and don't pick up a weapon and kill me, right? So, so in the same way, Jesus has it as a category for they are equal in some ways. that They equally deserve the wrath of God. They are equal in that they offend God. They're equal in that they put you in need of rescuing grace, but they're not equal in severity, consequences, or the damage they inflict. Think about it in terms of a tree and seed. So, so think about it, uh, adultery. Adultery is sexual sin in tree form. Lustful intent is sexual sin in seed form. Now, now th think about how this plays itself out then. A tree and a seed are different things, right? A, a tree and a seed are different. But, and here's a, a huge, like think about this. Yes, they are different, but everything the tree is, that seed contains, Everything that tree is, is contained in that one little seed. So, so, so here's Jesus' point. You name the sexual sin. For, from less severe all the way to the most severe. You, you just name the sexual sin, and the potential for that sin lies in every lustful heart. Every lustful heart is that seed that can grow into that tree. This is, this is Jesus' point. So, so why, why does Jesus bring it down to that lingering look, 
that, that lustful heart? Why, why does Jesus do that? What, what's so bad about lust? Let me just run through a couple of things about lust really briefly. Let me give you four things about lust, and gosh, we could talk about this for multiple sermons on end. But let me just give you four things that, that makes lust um, damaging and bad. What, what makes, when we do it, what makes us deserving of the wrath of God? What, why Jesus would, would include lustful intent as a breaking of the seventh commandment. Number one, lust diminishes sex. It diminishes sex. God designed sex to be a covenant sealing act. Marriage is a sacred covenant, one man, one woman, entrusting their whole life to the other. And sex is that sacred gift that seals that covenant commitment. That's what sex is for. Lust, on the other hand, rips sex from its covenantal context. Lust demands the pleasure of sex while denying the purpose of sex. That, that, that's what lust is. That's what, it's, that's what it do, it's doing. And that way it cheapens sex. It scars the beauty of sex. Lust diminishes sex. Here's the second thing. Lust dehumanizes. It dehumanizes. Um, first, to the luster. Think about the person who says, um, I, I can't help it. I, I just can't help it. It's just th these urges. I just can't help it. When you talk about yourself that way, you are reducing yourself to an animal with instincts. And that is not how God sees human beings. God sees human beings as created in his image. We are stamped, like the, the deepest parts of our soul are stamped with the image of God. You're not an animal with instincts. You're an image bearer of God. But, but lust has this way of, of dehumanizing us, and it de dehumanizes the one we're lusting after. They change from a person to be loved and a person to be cared for and a person to be served to an object, not, no longer a person, but an object that, that exists to, to, to satisfy my cravings. That's what lust does to the person on the other side. When's the last time a man lusting over his computer screen has stopped to think, that could be my daughter? When's the last time that's happened? How, how often does that happen? Not very often. Why is that? Because what lust turns the person we're lusting after into is less than human, into an object. We, we, they leave the category of a human being with a soul, and they become an object for our personal wants. Lust dehumanizes. Lust lies. Lust makes promises that it cannot pay. It promises like God, but pays like a devil. It writes checks that it cannot cash. I love what Frederick Buechner, he talks about lust like this. He says, lust is like a person craving salt while they're dying of thirst. That's what lust is. It, just, it, it makes all of these promises that it will be the satisfier of our souls, but it just can't do it. It, it lies in that way. Number four, lust imprisons. Just like Jesus has plans and purposes for your life, so does sin. Sin also has plans and purposes for your life. And those plans are to imprison. Those plans are to enslave. And there's no area in our culture where sin's been more successful than, than here. There's no area. And I want you to just look at me in the face for just a moment. I want you to look at me. And I just want you to hear that this said, just praying that the Lord would just 
allow this to prick your conscience this morning and to to shake you maybe out of of where you are and, and how you came into the room. Lust has one aim in your life, and just one. It doesn't have 10, it has one aim in your life, and that is to ruin your life. And I've been doing pastoral ministry long enough to to have seen many illustrations of it doing just that. It's got one aim. Whatever it's promising you right now, it's got one aim, and that aim is your absolute ruin. That's what it's after. You, You may be using it for something else, but what it's using you for is your ruin. That this is what it's after. This is what, it's, this is what it does. So, so when God comes along and he forbids sexual sin, he doesn't do that because he's a killjoy. He, he does that because he opposes what actually kills joy in our life. That that's why God is saying, no, this is why he includes lustful intent as a breaking of the seventh commandment. Because it kills joy. It doesn't add joy to your life. It doesn't bring joy to your life. It kills joy in your, your life. The end game of lust is not your joy, it's to kill your joy. That's what lust is after. It imprisons. Now I want to give you the third observation from this text, from verse 28. Third observation. Jesus uses a masculine pronoun, right? So this is the sort of language that's, that's in verse 28. If you look lustfully upon a woman, so, so it's, it's masculine in, in its presentation. Jesus uses a masculine pronoun, but now I just want to be really clear on this. Lust is not a male-only problem. It's not a male-only problem. And I have mistakenly addressed it that way for a lot of just my preaching sort of history, and I've done that wrongly. It's not just a male problem. It is a human problem. Uh, Statistics right now would tell us that roughly one out of three women, 25 and under, search for pornography um, at least once a month. It's not just a male problem. It is a human problem. And ladies, I don't say that to shame you. I say that to recognize you. Say that we're all in this battle together. We're all struggling with these sorts of things. We all need the grace of God in our life. It's not a a male problem. It's a human problem. Uh, Pornography can be can be read just as easily as it can be watched. And where the screen and what the screen is to many men, things like romance novels are to many ladies. And so this is not just a male problem. The seventh commandment is an equal gender offender. It covers us all in the room. It's a human problem. We're all in this together. Now here come the two applications, and we'll kind of finish with these two things, the two applications. application number one work to kill sin that's application number one work to kill sin this is verses 29 and 30 look look at them here just just read these and allow the spirit of god to like just pray as you read them that, that he would use these to be helpful in your life this morning verse 29 if your right eye caught this is jesus talking This is crazy talk. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Now what is Jesus saying there? Is Jesus saying that we should literally go around gouging out our eyes and and cutting off our hands? My answer is no to that. I don't think that's a good interpretation, right? Uh, If you think it is, you should grab a commentary and think about that a few minutes before you do it. 
So, so, so I don't think that's a good way. And here's the primary reason. Because the Bible is very clear that the problem is not our hand, the problem is not our eye, the problem is our heart. And so unless we can amputate our heart, a hand isn't going to do us much good, right? So, so I don't think that's Jesus' point. But what is his point? Here's the point. Jesus is saying in verses 29 and 30, sin is serious, so be serious about killing sin. That's the point. Sin is serious, so, so be serious about killing it. That, that, that's what Jesus is getting after. He's using gory and graphic imagery to, to tell us this is how serious these things are. It is gouge out your eyes serious. That's how serious lust is in your life. It, it is cut your right hand off serious. Jesus is saying it is better for you to fight so hard against lust and against sin in your life that, that you are down to like two nubs for hands. It, it, is, it is that serious. This is how serious sin is. This is how, how important you, you, the battle against these things are. Genesis 4 talks about sin like this. It says that sin is crouching at your door ready to devour you. That's the sort of language that Genesis 4 uses when it talks about sin. Can you imagine if I just announced this morning a public announcement? I just want to be helpful. There is a hungry pack of lions right out there. They're just on the outside of the building. Um, they're killing people. Here's the list of people they've killed. Uh, just want you to know that as you go to your car today. Can you imagine what it would look like for us to get to our car? How attentive we would be? How serious that trip would be? I mean, can, can you imagine what, what your mindset as you walked out the door? Now, now, Jesus is saying that that's the sort of mindset I want you to have with sin. It's either it lives or you live. It's either it dies or you die. As John Owen said, commentating on Romans 8.13, here are your options. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. These are the only options we have in our life. It's we are killing it or it is killing us. If you want to live, sin has to die. If you want sin to live, you die. That's what Jesus is saying here. Only one can live. Jesus is calling us to this rugged, take-no-prisoners attitude towards sin. He's saying, here's how serious it is. If you want victory over it, there's going to have to be a severing, an amputating, a gouging. That is the only way victory will be had. And why is this so important that we fight sin? Uh, Jesus is making it abundantly clear in this passage that if we have peace with our lust, we will perish. Now, I want to say that one more time. Part of what Jesus is saying in verses 29 and 30 is if you have peace with your lust, you will perish. If you have no heart to kill your sin, then you have no reason to believe that you've actually been saved from it. If you have peace with your sin, with your lust, you will perish. Saving faith is also a sin-fighting faith. Saving faith never just stands on its own. Saving faith is always a lust-fighting faith. He's saying this is, how, this is how serious it is. It is better for you to cut one hand off in your fight with sin than to go with both hands to hell. If you have peace with your sin, you, you will perish. This, this is what Jesus is saying here. So, so maybe we should just all ask ourselves the question, is lust worth going to hell over? Is it worth that? 
And, and the answer is no, it's not. Then Jesus is saying, then fight it. Like with everything you've got, you've got to fight sin. You've got to fight it. How can we fight it? Let me just give you three steps on this. There is so much more that can be said. I just want to say three quick things. Number one, confession is a way that we fight it. Confession. One of the unique things about sexual sin is that it unleashes unique shame along with it. And that shame has a way of driving us and keeping us in secrecy making these things very hard to talk about. And one of the most courageous things that we could do this morning is just confess our sin to Jesus and another brother or sister in the room. That, that is one of the first things we could say is, is confession, walking in the light. Um, here, here a while back, I was doing an assessment conference on some church planters. And at the last second, I decided I was going to stay overnight. It was about an hour drive. We got finished late. I was going to stay the night. So I went ahead and just got a hotel to, to stay uh, in the area that we were uh, doing the assessment conference. I get to the hotel room late. Um, I'm watching a, uh, a game. It ends, and I'm tired, and I grab the remote, and I just start flipping through some channels. And it is amazing how in the matter of about three clicks, I am watching something that was totally inappropriate. And can I just tell you what, what shame does in every one of those moments? Makes you want to hide it. Came home the next day, on the way home, stopped by Kevin's house, and uh, we took a drive, and I just walked in the light. Get a confession. That this is where the battle against sin starts. If you're not in the light, you will have no victory over sin in your life. So, so confession, that that's, that's where the battle starts. Another thing we could say is to create barriers in your life. Being radical in our sin killing means that we're honest about our sexual sin and we're honest about the way sexual sin comes into our life. Phones, apps, computers, romance novels, cable TV. I mean, just w whatever those things are. And then once we're honest about that, we take radical steps to eliminate those, those inroads into our life. That we're, that we're serious about that. I cut your hand off, I gouge your eye out, serious about these things. This is what Jesus is saying here. Now, parents, I, I just want to say this, and I'm going to keep moving. I'm actually going to um, send out a, a link this week, a few links this week in our weekly email that can just give you some, maybe some helps and some pointers on where to start in this. But I'm just going to say this and move on. Parents, if you have given your kids a phone, and with that phone, you have no plan, no well-thought-out plan on how you're dealing with the temptation and the dangers of that phone. If you have given your kids a phone and no plan, you might as well just put a Playboy or worse into their hands. So I just want to say that to parents. If you've got a teenager, you've got a child in your home, and they've got unfettered access to the internet, you are, you are doing a disservice to them as their parent. Like, you, you've got to get a plan working to serve and help and disciple the kids in your home. You, you've got to get a plan around that. So we have to think through, what, what are the barriers that we need to set up? And then thirdly, I, I just want to remind us all of this, the problem with sexual sin, the problem in sexual sin, that the problem is blindness, it's not behavior. The, the primary problem is, is blindness. Do, do you know why people look at pornography? Do you know why that is? It's really simple. Here's the reason. Because people want to. That's why. Because people want to. Under all of our doing is desire. 
And the reason we desire it is because we think that the pleasures of pornography are greater than the pleasures to be found in Jesus. So that means the only way we're ever going to stop looking at pornography is for us to find a greater pleasure in Jesus. And the only way that happens in a human heart is when our eyes come alive and we can actually see the beauty of who Jesus is. See, if we're struggling with sexual sin right now, and that's virtually every one of us in the room, if we're doing that, the problem is not primarily our behavior. It's a problem of sight. We just, we're just not seeing how beautiful and how pleasurable Jesus is. And the biggest thing we need, the most important thing we can do is pray and plead and read our scriptures asking Jesus to give us eyes to see him as the satisfier in our soul. See, the only way you're ever going to drive out a wrong want in your heart, a wrong, and we all have wrong wants, the only way you're ever going to drive out wrong wants is for a greater want to come into your soul. And the only way that happens is for our eyes to come open to the person of Jesus. Are you fighting sin? Are you fighting it? Work to kill your sin. Here's the last thing I want to say and then I'm done. Work to kill your sin, but, here's a huge, here's a huge but, but don't depend on your work. W work to kill your sin, yes! Gouge your eye out, serious. We should all get about the work of killing our sin. It is the line out in the driveway right now. We don't walk out trying to tame the line. We don't walk out with a little cage to put the line in. We don't walk out with leashes to put the line on. No, we go out there to try to kill the line. That, that's, we're all working to kill our sin, but we can't depend on our work. And this is, this is the larger thing that Jesus is saying with this passage. He's looking at scribes and Pharisees who, who, who are depending on their work, their sin killing, to make them right with God. I mean, this is the whole point. In, in verse 28, Jesus is deepening the seventh commandment all the way down to lustful intent. Jesus is saying regardless of how much progress you've made against sin in your life, you're still a sexual sinner in need of rescue. Every one of us are. We're sexual sinners in need of rescue. When, when God puts his perfect law, the seventh commandment, beside our imperfect life, and, and when he reads over our life, you shall not commit adultery, no one is going to look up at God and say, man, I've nailed that one. What's the next one? Let, let's move on to that one. No, no one is going to be able to say that. No one. No human being is going to look at the seventh commandment before God and say, Yes, I've done it. Save one, and his name was Jesus. Isn't it amazing that Jesus, uh, he spent the last three years of his life, in his 30s, spent the last three years of his life on a three-year camping trip with 12 men. <laughs> and he never sinned sexually. He never, he never allowed physical admiration to cross the line into lustful intent. He never inappropriately fantasized. He never objectified another human being as if they were made to meet his wants. In every moment, he perfectly loved people, served people, cared for people, for all of those around. And he did all that for you. He did all that in your place. 
And it's only those who give up on their righteousness, who give up on their good works, securing their standing before God. It's only those who will give up on themselves and stop depending on their performance, their good deeds, or even their purity before God to secure their righteousness. It's only those people who give up on themselves who receive the righteousness of Jesus. In the larger context, what this passage, what Jesus is doing in this passage, is he's, he's intending to put the one thing into your hands that you need if you're ever going to be rescued by Jesus. And that one thing is nothing. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to, he's trying to, to, to help you get everything out of your hands. He's trying to show us that there's one thing worse than realizing you're a sinner, and that's never realizing you need a Savior. This is what Jesus is doing in this passage. And the sad story of the New Testament is that the scribes and Pharisees, they just, they couldn't see their nothingness. They they couldn't see their need before God. I mean, here was the problem with the scribes and Pharisees. Catch this. Here was the problem. They were sexually pure enough that they just couldn't see their sexual impurity. Isn't that ironic? That they were sexually pure enough, they couldn't, they just couldn't see how God would consider them sexually impure. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 21, this is why he says, truly I say to you, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. It, it's, it's hard to even bring 21st century sort of um, imagery around tax collectors and prostitutes. That, that would be like saying, um, hey, truly I tell you, the murderers and the molesters, the, the perverts and all the pedophiles, that, that this is the equivalent. Jesus is saying, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're going into the kingdom of God before you. Now, now why is that? Here's why the scribes and the Pharisees, just like, just like many of us, that they were just good enough to think that God was going to be impressed with their goodness. But, but the tax collectors and, 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 and the prostitutes, they, they knew they had no goodness before God. They had the one thing you need, and that is nothing. See, their good things were just bad enough that they knew they had no goodness before God. So they're coming into the kingdom of God before us. Now hear me, church. Until we realize our goodness is so bad before God that we can't depend on it, we will never get into the kingdom of God. But for all those like the tax collectors, like the prostitutes who who today can, can come before God with nothing, like we're coming with the empty hands of faith, for all of us who come with our nothing, Jesus says, finally, you're welcome. Come, I want to give you my perfect record of righteousness. Yes to you. So Stonegate, may we not miss that. May we not miss that. Will you bow your head with me? I want to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful today and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be.
you know, it's amazing reading the New Testament. Jesus is so kind and tender-hearted towards sexual sinners. It's amazing to read the New Testament and see that. And at the same time, he is so harsh toward hypocrites. To one so tender, to one so harsh. And, and the journey out of hypocrisy is um, hard, but it's very simple. The, the journey out of hypocrisy is confession by walking in the light. By opening up to what's really going on in your life, in your soul. That's how we walk out of hypocrisy and into the light with Jesus. And for everyone willing to come into the light, the New Testament shows us Jesus is so tender. He's so caring. There is so much grace to be found there. Jesus doesn't heap embarrassment and shame and condemnation on you. He died on the cross to take it away from you. And so I, I think a good step for many of us today is just the courage to confess to Jesus and this morning to a brother or sister. To confess before it ruins our life. To confess before we're imprisoned by it. God, give us the courage to do that. And for others in the room, may, maybe, this is, maybe, maybe this is the application for you today. That you're just pure enough that you have a way of, just like the Pharisee in Luke 18, to look down your nose at the, the sexual sin around you as if how could they? Thanking God that you're not like one of those. And maybe today is the day where God helps you see you are one of those. You, you are one. Which is why you, just like all of us, need a savior, need a rescuer. And maybe it's, it's been that your good deeds have been just good enough that you've been attempting to depend on those before God. And this is the day that the blinders come off and you realize you're like the rest of us in need of a Savior, in need of the saving, rescuing work of Jesus. This is why Jesus came to, to, to live for you, to die in your place for your sin, to, to rise from the dead on the third day. It's so that you could be rescued. So, so oh God, would you give us eyes to see and hearts to hear today? God, would you help us God, I pray for freedom for my brothers and sisters in the room. God, I pray for those who feel like they've confessed for the thousandth time. God, I pray that you would help them. If there's one thing we know about the seventh commandment, it's that we know we need grace, God. But we need your help. So God, help us. God, help us. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. 
so we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.